Hello, and welcome to OA On Air. This is our special Pridecast edition in celebration of Boston Pride Week. Our first interview is with Boston Pride President Linda DeMarco, who will give you all the details of Pride Week. Next is Joe Trujillo, a professor at Simmons College, who's also a former parade marshal. Joe will be talking about the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Inn riots. And last is Athena Vaughn of Fenway Health, who talks about being a trans woman of color in the community. First up, Linda DeMarco. Welcome, Linda. Hey, thanks for having us, or me. Thanks for having me. We're so happy to have you here. We always love this uh, this podcast, talking about Pride and all the wonderful things that uh, your organization does for the city. This year, you have a new theme. It's looking back, loving forward. What does that mean? Well, it kind of goes in conjunction with the uh, 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Uh, as you know, um, the Stonewall riots were in 1969 in New York. And so we want to look back. We want to look back at these pioneers who risked their lives to fight for our rights. So it's kind of like the start of the movement that started that night. And so we want to look back at all the triumphs that we've made and all the courageous efforts these people went through. You know, people were gay bashed, they were in closets, you know, they fought the AIDS, which is still ongoing. So we want to have the youth in particular look back and see this, what we've done to get to where we are right now. And then loving forward. So it's the next 50 years. What do we want to do? We want to love forward, embrace each other, embrace our allies, embrace our supporters, and then just keep the movement going until it's not someone's first pride. It's, it's, it's a movement that gives everyone equality and everyone love. So that's why we pick that. That theme. Nice. Well, we know that this year uh, it's shaping up to be one of the biggest pride parades I heard ever. So, uh, can you let us in on a little bit? What's going on with the parade? Well, it is. It is really, and it is very, very big. I'll let you in. Yeah, uh, it's always easy to tell people when they get facts and numbers and stuff. So, last year, for instance, the marching contingents, or marching contingent, is a float, a car, or a marching group. We had three hundred and sixty marching groups, contingents. This year, we've already passed 420. So this is due to a couple of things. One, we're more progressive here in Massachusetts. So this is, we will probably end up being the third largest in the country um, if these numbers sustain themselves uh, through the eighth. Um, New York obviously is really large. San Francisco is really large, but we've always been competitive with uh, Chicago and, and Long Beach, the larger cities. But we have really good numbers here, and we're so excited about them, to be honest with you, because people are recognizing Stonewall. They're coming out with a lot more floats this year. We've actually had a push and asked our community, you know what, wow us. Make us make us know what you're here. So we have a lot of floats, and we have a lot of uh, really great marching groups. So we're kind of excited about some of the people. We just did the lineup the other day, oh. or tried to line it up as best as we could, and there were a lot of new folks joining us, uh, a lot of new groups, which is great. We hear that there's another um, a, a special surprise at the end of the parade. Can you tell us about that? Oh, all right, we'll <laughs> let you know about it. So we're really, actually, this is the first in Boston, and from here, it goes to New York. So we are going to have the first Unity Pride flag. Um, it's around 300 feet long, I believe, and it's an accumulation of all our flags in our community. 
you know, the bisexual flag, the transgender flag, the diversity flag, and it goes on and on and on. It's a pretty large flag, and we're really, really proud to have it here. And from here, again, it goes to New York. Um, and after that, to end of the parade is a quarter-mile-long rainbow flag. And we're asking everybody in the community, everyone along the parade route, we're asking them actually to jump in, join the parade, wow. and help us carry this to City Hall Plaza. So we calculate that Boylston Street is going to be a sea of rainbow, which is really what we want. So we're really excited about that. That's the rain. That's the Rainbow River flag. Wow, that's going to be amazing. <clears throat> and that again goes to New York. But in New York, it's going to be a little bigger. But you know, that's okay. We'll give it to them. <laughs> well, I just want to remind everybody: it's June eighth. Starts at noon. The parade starts at noon at Copley Square, and it kind of goes through the back bay, south end, then back up to Beacon Hill, and it ends at City Hall Plaza. And what happens at City Hall Plaza? Well, we have a festival and a concert, a free concert. Uh, we're always proud of that here. Um, we're one of the last prides in, to be honest with you, that gives a free concert to their community. And we ha we tried to get some really good headliners. We have Todrick Hall. Um, we have some other exciting uh, local bands. Um, but it's free, and that's the operative word. And we also have a festival bar, and that bar area is also free for people 21 and over to go in and enjoy the concert. And then we actually have 140 vendor booths. Wow. A lot of them are going to be really, I'm really proud to say they're all nonprofits within our community. A real lot of them are uh, informational booths about resources that members of our community can reach out to and, and know more about what we do. So we're kind of happy about that turnout for our, for our vendors. And that's going to be a real exciting day. And then that night, we have the youth dance. Mm. So... All the youth coming out uh, at City Hall, and uh, we're really happy. It's been growing and growing. They have a really good DJ this year, so we expect the youth to really have a great time. That's Saturday night party for youth is really good. We're happy about that. And then the party continues, right? The next day you have a couple of uh, Yeah, we want to keep on going. We can keep <laughs> on going for a long time. It's Pride Month, but the next day we have our community block party. So we have one in Jamaica Plain. In the neighborhood of Hyde Square, mm -hmm. uh, the folks at Hyde Square welcome us every year, um, and that's where we do our traditional um, doggy diva drag show. So we have a uh, some divas with some dogs, rescue dogs for adoption. And I can for adoption, mm -hmm. and we've done fifty five adoptions since we started this about six years ago. Oh. So I'm really happy about that. And then in the back bay, it's on St James Street right in the heart of the Back Bay, uh, near Copley Square, and we actually have a, a celebrity DJ from Australia, Ooh. DJ Slater, coming from Australia to uh, spin um, the night away, but to accompany uh, DJ uh, Slater, we have a local uh, DJ Dina. Mm -hmm. It's the first time for her doing a block party, so we're kind of happy to let people come to a block party to hear one of our local celebrity DJs, so we're happy that Dina's coming. So we're really good about that. Then there's a closing party that night. Um, we have some Fenway Park. That yep. And then after that, doesn't doesn't end with we have Fenway Park on June Tuesday June, the 11th. Yep. June 11th. And then we head off to World Pride in New York, Stonewall 50 World wow. Pride. Wow, that's gonna be huge. We have a contingency from Boston. About 41 people are gonna be marching in World Pride. We're really happy. It's local. It's nearby. If you recall, Madrid had the last World Pride and. Uh, about two or three years ago, we, there was about 10 of us there. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to have over 40 people represent Boston, represent our, our home state, 
and we're going to be marching in uh, with the Interpride contingent from all the prides from around the world. We're going to be joining with Zurich Pride and Copenhagen Pride and London Pride and folks from Palm Springs and California are going to be joining us. And we're just going to be we're going to we're actually fortunate enough to kick off the parade in New York. So we're really happy about that. So that'll be exciting. So a lot of people don't know that you are a co co-president of Interpride. Yes, I am. And what, what's involved with that? Those responsibilities. You don't have enough to do to uh, oversee <laughs> Boston Pride. You have to get involved in Enterprise. Yes, well, you know, uh, someone's got to do it, right, Ann? Right. So yes, um, I'm very fortunate to be a co-president. My other co-president is from Geneva. And so we work uh, we work out our time zone differences. And uh, we have 280 prides from around the world that are members of Interpride. And we all do work within our regions. Euro, it's called Europride in Europe, uh, Fiesta Canada. Although there's 80 Canadian prides right now, the U.S. prides, um, and we have Asian Pacific prides. We have prides around the world. And so what we do is we help with uh, resources, uh, solidarity grants. Boston actually donates to the solidarity grants to help these prides develop themselves. Because some of them, uh, you know. Uh, in Russia, it's kind of difficult to have a pride there. So, you know, we have solidarity grants and we have scholarships and we help these people be able to go out in the street and show that they just want to be loved and they just want to be part of the community. Mm -hmm. And so we do the best we can. So Interpride is a really important resource for the pride. And then you can help someone like Quincy Pride right next door. Right. You know, Interpride helped them get started. Mm -hmm. So... Well, really I know that um, Boston Pride, I think, is looked at as a as a leader in the United States and in, if not the world in the Pride movement. And um, next year, I know you're celebrating a special anniversary, and uh, it's 50th anniversary of Boston Pride next year. Uh, are you already planning for that, and how can people become involved? Well, that's one of the key things, Anne. Thanks for bringing that up. It is our 50th. We, our first Pride started the year after the Stonewall riots in 69. So 1970, we started our first Pride in Boston. And next year is the 50th. We've already been in talks with the city for this. We want fireworks, and literally, we want fireworks. We so. want fireworks, okay. <laughs> so we want to go out with a bag. We want to have some fireworks. We're going to have bigger parties. We're going to have more educational stuff, because, you know, Pride is not just a party. Like, we have some really good Pride Arts events going on, so we're going to step those up. We're going to step up more education, uh, more learning about the history, and to help people move forward mm -hmm. and love forward. So we have some exciting, exciting things. And if you think it's 420 contingents now, you wait till next year. People are going to come out. They're going to support us. And that's why we need people to help us. We need people at the table to come to our meetings and help us plan this big, important year for uh, progress here in Boston. So you probably start that when? The fall? The oh, yeah. We start that, that September. You're yeah. gonna, we, people want to come and join us September. We start the week after uh, Labor Day. That Tuesday, mm -hmm. every Tuesday night, 630, we have it in our in our pride office and we start right after Labor Day and we have not stopped since then. So we probably should start this one early, but it's we have World Pride this year. <laughs> We're gonna to be tired. <laughs> you have to take a little bit of a break, yes. right? Yes. But um just one personal thing uh, that you can tell us about. Your favorite moment during Pride Week, you are involved and immersed in so many of the little details. But from a big picture perspective, what what is your what is your best moment during the week? Well I, people know me as the person on the golf cart. Uh, I've, I've run into people and say, hey, you're the woman on the golf cart. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to uh, run too many people over, but being on the golf cart, I, I end up being all around the festival and all around the parade route. And I always, always can see 
a, someone's first pride, whether it's a youth or a senior, in particular last year, there was this uh, elderly woman who was standing there and uh, it, I walked, I stopped and I said, hey, you having a good time? She goes, she had a tear in her eye and said, this is my very first time. I didn't have enough, I didn't have enough guts to come out and I should have done this a long time ago. So things like that make me do what I need, what I do right now because we gave her the strength to be able to come and stand on the sidewalk. It was actually right next to uh, the, the Boston Common there, right there right. between Common and the Garden. And I could just tell it was her first one and she was all choked up and she was just looking at the parade. So a couple years before that, I saw a little kid with their mother and he wanted to go and his mother said, sure, I'll go. And I don't know if he was emotional because his mother was willing to go or she was emotional because she was able to be there. But we, we did that. Yeah. All the work that the committee does makes it able for people. And it's really gratifying. So I really want people to come out and join us. And we have all these subcommittees, the youth committee. Mm -hmm. We have our Black Pride Committee to do people for the people of color so they can have events that they want to celebrate. Uh, Latino pride. So it's a good thing. What we do is good. It's kind of quirky, but you know, it's those things wonderful. make me remind myself of why I ride up and down on golf carts and look for Linda. Pick up trash. <laughs> um, we know that people might want to get more information. Is uh, where, where should they go? To the website? Well, we have a lot of social media. Right? It's the, that's, the, that's the name of the game. So we do have a website, bostonpride.org. We have our, a new app, a new and improved app. They can download it on their phone, and they can on that app they get maps, they get uh, events, buy tickets to our events, um, and then just follow us on Instagram and Facebook, um, Twitter, because we're always Twittering or tweeting, tweeting. whatever that is. <laughs> I know I'm aging myself, Anne, That's but okay. we try to keep everyone informed so they can be able to have the best opportunity to attend the best. Plus, let's not forget, we had our fifth year of our Pride Guide out there. Right. So our Pride Guide is all around the city and all around the state. All the stop and shops are carrying them. And oh, in that great. is a calendar listing of everything that you could possibly want to know about Boston Pride. Well, thank you, Linda. And um, I think all I can say now is, like, happy Pride, right? Happy Pride. <laughs> We're going to make rainbows, the city of Boston, all rainbows. Thanks, Linda. Now let's hear from Joe on the Stonewall Riots. This is Suzanne Morse, Vice President at O'Neill & Associates. I'm here today with Joe Tregilio to discuss the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which Boston Pride will be commemorating this year. On the faculty at Simmons College, Joe has written an article in the Boston Pride Guide regarding Stonewall and its significance to the LGBTQ community. Welcome, Joe Tregilio. Thanks for having me, Suzanne. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So, as we mentioned, this is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, and Boston Pride will be commemorating that um, those events this year during Pride Week. Can you give a summary of what happened at the Stonewall Inn in June 1969 and why it became so important to the LGBTQ community? Sure, um, I think what we should start with recognizing that in 1969, homosexual activity and uh, cross-dressing were illegal activities, they were criminalized. Um, and so gay bars were often raided by police across the nation and urban centers. Uh, the Stonewall Inn was a little bar. Uh, it catered to uh, a population that uh, racially mixed, marginalized people, drag queens, butch dykes, transsexuals, homeless gay youth, uh, gay and trans workers. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, because there's a lot of history about this, on June 29th, it was raided by the police. 
And the custom was to hold everybody and ask them all to procure their licenses. And so they held everyone and they started releasing people. And usually they arrested people who didn't have IDs, like the homeless Mm -hmm. gay Mm -hmm. youth. Um, And they arrested, and this is, you know, I think not well known, people who were not wearing three items of gender appropriate yeah, clothing. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting detail that I had not heard before that was in your um, in your article. I should also mention, of course, that the Stonewall Inn is in New York City. Right. And so, you know, as they were, uh, people were outside that night getting boisterous, waiting for their friends to come out, get released, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody was just kind of festive at first, cheering as the people came out. And at some point, and there's some dispute as to what happened exactly, but I think that when they started seeing the um, their drag queens and their butch dyke friends getting forced into the paddy wagon, the mood changed mm-hmm. and people started throwing stuff and people started resisting the police and a riot broke out and it went on for uh, five days and nights. Right. Um, so your article talks about the Stone, Stonewall in relation to the radical roots of the LGBTQ um, and you make a point of mentioning that it's a bit of a myth that the riots started the movement in the in this country. So can you talk about a little bit about what the LGBTQ movement looked like prior to Stonewall? Sure. I mean, I think Stonewall is a really convenient historical marker, and that's most most people describe it as. Uh, of course, I mean, if we look at the 60s, so much was already happening, yeah. the Black Civil Rights Movement was well underway and the women's rights movement was well underway. So there were a lot of people already energized. And I think that in a lot of urban areas, especially there were um, gay organizations, they were kind of quiet because it was a criminalized activity. Right, sure. Uh, and there were, but there, you know, in a, there was, there were those, you know, uh, organizations. But there was also activist activity happening in a lot of places. It, this wasn't the first uprising. It wasn't the first riot. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the first police resistance. There was already, I think, a, a, a structure in place so that when Stonewall happened, um, and it really captivated, I think. Uh, you know, the imagination of people that were a little bit more radical and were interested in making change and making it faster and not trying to uh, go it the polite way of the assimilationist, mm-hmm. you know, underground orgs that were right. already in existence. I wonder if it, if the fact that Stonewall was in New York is part of the reason why it catalyzed it, just because New York as a media center um, allowed for for more people to sort of be aware of it, you know. So anyway. I think it also allowed more people to participate in it because right. I think, you know, just the way, you know, the structure of New York City, yeah. people, it was easy for people to show up at the riots at night and participate. Right. Yeah, well, that makes sense. So where did it go after um, the couple of years after Stonewall? Um, well, I think that the way I see it in that first year after Stonewall, it the gay movement um, was a kind of a liberationist mm-hmm. uh, movement. In the U.S., we've always had this tension between liberationist organizations and um, assimilationist organizations. I would describe a lot of those organizations pre-Stonewall as assimilationists. They were, you know, not really contesting the norm. They were trying to say to folks, look at, we're just like you. We're like normal people. Please stop criminalizing our activity <laughs> and, you know, stop pathologizing us in the DSM. Uh, yeah. And they were going about it in, you know, 
the kind of just normative channels they were not protesting or demonstrating. Right. Um, liberationist organizations are way more interested in the system and how the system uh, keeps uh, sees oppressions as interlocked or intertwined and uh, if you can keep all the oppressed people fighting against each other mm. uh, then the power establishment can just you know maintain itself and go forward I think that in that first year there was really a tone of liberationism of let's look at all the kinds of oppression let's understand multiple forms of oppression after all the people that you know, we're at Stonewall that started this resistance were people of color, right. trans people, gender variant people, homeless people. I mean, the people who actually had multiple forms of oppression, they were very disadvantaged. They probably had experienced many abuses in their lives. Um, and I think that given that that was the tone of Stonewall, um, in that first year, there was a lot of liberationist kind of activity, it's hard to maintain that kind of activity yeah. because I think people like to just look at themselves and, you know, they're concerned with their own form of oppression and don't take, don't make the effort to learn about the other forms of oppression. Um, so to that point, your article is really concerned with urging the current LGBTQ movement to elevate the voices of the disadvantaged and marginalized members of the community. What does that work look like for you? Well, I think that, like, if we just even just look back at Stonewall, what we find is that, I mean, the movement after Stonewall, I want to say, is that uh, in short order, uh, people lapsed into single-issue organizing um, and more of the uh, assimilationist type of organizing mm -hmm. where people, where the strategy is, look, I'm just like you. Can I just have this one right? Can I have now this other right? And that approach works best for people that are already the most advantaged, right. and it, it doesn't work at all for people who experience multiple forms of, of oppression. Uh, I think that the LGBT population, community, et cetera, has uh, work to do still, I think, in holding hands, as I, to use a metaphor. Um, it's hard to understand the way multiple forms of oppression affect one individual, and so, and it's also hard to just stop and look beyond yourself mm. and look at someone who maybe has more disadvantages than you and then just reach out to them and pull them up and organize around the most disadvantaged. Right. I think that if we do that, we take care of everyone. Like if we mm. organize and we are concerned with and care about the most disadvantaged in our community and uh, reach out and provide the kind of support and help that they need, um, that's real community. I mean, community, and I don't think that saying, you know, me first and saying I'm, you know, I'm interested in community, I think those things are incompatible. Yeah. Community really does mean looking at your neighbor and helping your neighbor. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a really valid point. Um, so one last question. Uh, you were the parade marshal last year at Boston Pride, and so I thought, you know, spend a few minutes telling telling people what it's like to be a parade marshal <laughs> in such a big parade. Uh, well, you know, I've been I've been organizing in the LGBT movement since I was really young. Um, I came out really young, and I just was, you know, I've always been political. I, you know, helped organize the Boston Dyke March for fourteen years. Um, 
so of course for me, and I'm beh- I'm a behind the scenes person. Yeah. I'm not really a limelight person. So it was kind of an honor to sit in that car and wave at the crowds. It was probably one of the best experiences of my life because I love gay pride. That's Just great. absolutely love gay pride. Like every gay pride to me is exciting as the last. It never gets old for me. So that was wonderful. But I also got to use it as a platform to talk about intersectionality and to talk about um, compassion and community and reaching across differences because those are the issues that really concern me the most. I mean, I'm a white person um, and I understand that you know, the privilege, I mean, I'm gender variant, so I have multiple forms of oppression. Um, But I think that white LGBT people really should concern themselves with the racism in the society at large, especially these days, um, and racism within LGBT communities, and seriously commit ourselves to addressing it. Um, We shouldn't expect our um, LGBT friends of color to do all the work for themselves if we're white. So that's my little (laughs) plug to folks that are white. Uh, And I also think that um, the issues of gender variant people and trans people have also fallen through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important for us to start centering um, issues of LGBT people of color, trans people, gender variant people, people who are, you know, economically disadvantaged, um, people who are disabled, homeless, the elderly. Uh, So I got to use it as a platform to talk about the things that I'm most passionate about. Yeah, I mean, part of what prompted me to um, ask this question is I actually saw a tweet that Simmons did um, of you. It was from last year where um, they had a picture of you on the parade. And you did. You had this big, big, you know, smile, and it looked like you were having a great time. But also it was clear that they had done an interview with you about the social justice aspects. So it's nice that you, <laughs> it brings it all together. Well, I got to use all my, um, a lot of my students showed up actually oh, with signs uh, about intersectionality oh, and great. they were really, really excited to participate and kind of, you know, promote the intersectional message right. as a kind of educational opportunity. That's great. Anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, I think that's, uh, well, what I would like to add is everyone should go to Pride and Absolutely. enjoy themselves. Uh, that is true. Uh, well, thank you, Joe Trigilio. We appreciate you being on OA on Air today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for talking to us, Joe. Now we're going to hear from Athena Vaughn. And I'm here today with Athena Vaughn, who will be talking with us about the life and legacy of Marsha P. Johnson. Johnson has been named Champion of Stonewall Honorary Marshal for this year's Boston Pride Parade, which marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. And Athena is going to talk a little bit about why that honor is so important. So welcome, Athena. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about Marsha P. Johnson. Who was she? What role did she play at the Stonewall Riots? And um, what does she mean to the trans community? She was a native of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a drag queen. Um, and at the time that she was out, um, you were either a drag queen or you were a transvestite. Mm. You weren't. There was, the word transgender just was not around. Right. Um, she was the person who had the courage to stand up when no one else would for a community that at the time was dying. Mm. Um and she had the courage to do what a lot of us want to do, but in the back of our minds probably would not do. 
Um, you know, you grow up and you realize that when your parents tell you, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't throw rocks <laughs> and stuff <laughs> right. like that. So, you know, in our minds, we probably would have loved to have done that. Right. And, and at that time, I don't know if I would have had the courage to have done it. Yeah. But I probably would have had the courage to speak up more. But I don't know if I would have had the courage to throw a rock or stone or anything. So anytime you throw a rock into a lake, right? the lake, of course, is going to ripple. And, you know, it seems like it's uneasy. Eventually, the water will calm itself again. Yeah. But the difference is that the rock is still there. And so she threw the rock. It rippled and um, made a impact and a statement for a community. And so even though things somewhat have calmed down and become a little more peaceful, the rock is still there. That's such an interesting metaphor. Um, we should just say that um, the Stonewall riots, which took place in June 1969 in New York City, uh, part of what happened mm-hmm. is that after um, after people were arrested and some people were let go, were let go, mm-hmm. um, someone threw a rock, Marsha P. Johnson. Right. And that began uh, four days of rioting. So yes. that's where <laughs> that's where the rock metaphor came in. But it's a really interesting metaphor mm-hmm. as we think about the movement that emerged right. out of that. Correct. Um, so so as I mentioned, she's been she was named the champion of Stonewall honorary marshal for this year's Boston Pride Parade. She actually passed away, I think, in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think it's real? It's significant that Pride recognized her contribution. Um, I think it's. It's it's needed because she was of the community, mm. and she represented the community, and the aspects of everything that she did with the uprising, the riots, and became an activist yeah. uh, for this community. Um, I think it's it's there is a time where um, I say I used to say this all the time that being LGBTQ is 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 rising and changing and difference. Mm. But the problem that I've always had is that the trans community has always seemed to have an umbrella over it, mm. or it's shaded and or it's not acknowledged and or recognized as much as the other parts, the aspects of this community, when in fact it was a trans-identified woman now at the time, um, rest her soul, that started a riot mm. on behalf of a community um, to have a voice, to have a place, to 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 be here and just be us, and, and understanding that we're human beings and we're people as well, and so I think it's amazing to honor her because she she set this in motion. Right. Um. She she built a legacy that we can fall back on as transgender individuals, um, to be able to fight for a cause that we believe in. Right. And so I think it's it's amazing to honor her because of some of those reasons and much much more, um, for the things that she's done. And and I just think that. Being who she is, growing up, uh, my grandma, my grandma grew up in church and everything. She used to always say, "You give someone their flowers while they live." Mm. And so, even though we probably weren't able to honor her while she was living, this is an honor um, to give her as a memory. So, you're currently are the senior transgender health navigator at Fenway Health. Why are these services so important to the transgender community in Boston? I learned that the needs of this community were. Um, navigating through insurance. It's mm. one of the hardest things yeah, for sure. someone being a transgender individual um, to navigate themselves with the health insurance. And then it was name changes. It just seems so hard. You know, 
because, you know, if you had to find someone who was going to pay for it and how to get it done, the correct paperwork, if you didn't fill it out correctly. Mm-hmm. And then the biggest issue was housing and still is housing. Sure. And so we have transcompetent shelters, but why don't we have trans shelters themselves? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Competency is, is amazing to have in these programs and everything. Right. But we have programs that are for MSM. We have programs for uh, individuals who may identify as lesbians. We have all these programs particular for them. We have all of these shelters particularly for women, for men. And then it comes to competency part, which again is amazing. But then what about having a place that they can have of their own? Mm -hmm. And then it also helps because you have this place where transgender individuals are and then you can hire trans individuals to work there. So yeah, it gets right. them off the streets. It right. gets them from doing sex work and, and, and right. start to repair their lives in ways that could be amazing. Gives them a professional base to right. build on. Yeah. And so with doing all of these programs, you notice some girls were coming to our programs and were explaining how there was no competency at shelters. There was no shelters that they can go to. And if they were to go to, go, go to a shelter, they had to go to a men's shelter. You had girls coming to us who could not navigate the systems as far as name changes. You had girls who came mm-hmm. to us and were saying that they were having problems that their doctors were getting hormones and things of that individual analogy because you had people who were working there that even after you explained to them that this, this individual identifies as a transgendered female who asks to she, her, and her pronouns, yeah. instead of making a note inside of the chart, you would just be ignorant enough to continue to still call them by something that they do not identify. Yeah. And so we're going to appointments with these clients and we're going to this courthouse actually right here yeah. um, for these name changes to be sure that these clients can navigate through the systems that they need. And so you had girls who were coming to us that were homeless, who were showering and stuff. We had programs where um, we had a beauty day where they got their hair done, they got their nails done mm-hmm. and everything. And some of them went to interviews after that. We had um, services where they can come and just sit twice a month, eat food and talk to other individuals that were like yeah. them just to relax. A support network, etc. And then we have something called movie nights where they can come and we'll try to watch movies, order pizza or whatever, popcorn, and they can just enjoy themselves. And so what we call that in the community is called peer support. Yeah. And so um, peer support is amazing because it keeps clients or people or individuals who identify as trans or gender nonconforming or whatever, um, it keeps them uplifted. You know what I'm saying? They yeah. have a place to come. Right. They have a place to go to. They know who they can talk to. If they're having a problem, we have clients who will call us about Section 8 issues, bring us the paperwork of what it says, and we'll call Section 8 immediately right. and explain who we are and say, can we sit down and talk about whatever it is? It sounds like there's like hard supports around mm-hmm. things like you know, navigating through the healthcare system, but then there's the soft supports of, of not having, you know, having a network of people who understand the same challenges that you're going through and not having to kind of... Mm-hmm dig deeply into all of that. So. And then you also have um, hormone replacement therapy. We get mm. clients appointments for that. Yeah. Um, as well as, of course, the um, HIV and AIDS and STI aspect of prevention that is required. Sure. Um, and so my job is to uh, test, is to navigate, to link to care, and then, of course, the uh, peer support. And so that's what that's what I do, and that's what essentially the Transcend program is. Understood. Interesting. So you're also the president of the New England Ball Collective, where you organize balls for young queer and trans people of color. Uh, what are the specific challenges that trans people of color face, and how does your work help them? Um, we're doing in the work in the field that I am in. I have a platform to be able to 
network and connect individuals to others that I may know or programs that I may know that can help. Mm-hmm. And so um, doing this work, it requires some hair pulling at times. It sure. requires just feeling as if something has, someone has a foot on your neck and isn't able to help you progress the way you need to. It's always in this line of work, and I love the line of work that I do, but it's sometimes it's always, they make it so hard to maneuver for people and individuals who need, who need this help. Yeah. And so I've learned working in this field for over 13 years how to navigate through some of those systems. Not saying that, that I can always guarantee that the outcome is going to be good. Not guaranteeing that the outcome will always be bad. What I can guarantee you is that whatever the outcome is, I'm going to continue to fight and to be sure right. that you're receiving anything that you need um, that I'm able to to get for you. Right. And so um, one of the aspects we do have um, is is ballroom. And so ballroom is a a, a entity that was created years ago, um, again by drag queens, by mothers of in this scene um, to create a safe space for LGBTQ individuals to come and to express their talents on a floor, to to express their anger all on the floor. Right. And so um, the ballroom is created, it was built and created of, of houses. So when people were ostracized outside of their family for being LGBTQ or for being HIV or being attracted to the same sex, you were you would come into this atmosphere which you would find someone that you would connect with that could be your mother or your father. Mm. And then you would have brothers and sisters. And of course, in this, this this aspect, you would have you would battle for cash or you would battle for trophies, um, but it's something called leaving on the floor. So once the floor was done and ball was over, you have friends and family right. everywhere that you that you hang out with and you spend time with. And so the aspect of that family is the mother and father are the head of the household, and they're being sure to make sure that you have a roof over your head, food in your stomach, clothes on your back, and also of course some educational and or sexual history to be sure right. that you're able to function if anything was to happen to them or when you finally out on your own. Right. And so that is, you know, part of the volunteer work that I do with Bagley um, to be sure that the individuals trans identified, you know, nonconforming can have a space just to be them as well. Right. Um, and so, yeah. Okay, well, Athena Vaughn, thank you for joining us today. Of course. This is Two Minutes with Tom on and, our... And Anne. Oh. And Anne. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's That's terrific. Right. It's a special edition, though, because it's it's a Gay Pride Week, and we want to pay attention to that, don't we? Well, it's a Pride cast, yep. we're calling it. Oh, and we are. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Bo- and Boston Pride has been a longtime client yes, sure of us have. here at O'Neill & Associates, so mm-hmm. we're just interested, Tom. What does Pride mean to you? Well, it, first of all, it means we've got a lot of friends in the, in the, in the gay community uh, throughout all of New England and frankly the country because of the work which we've done here for for uh, pride respect gay pride respect uh, not only here but throughout all of Massachusetts and New England and the work we do I think is, is greatly admired and appreciated by the gay and lesbian community um, what does it mean to me personally it's um, it's a great question um, I, I think there's not a family in the world that's not it's not seeing some gay person in their own life, in their own family, in their own personal, everyday story. And, you know, the O'Neill family is no different. Uh, I have, I have uh, nieces that are, that are gay and married and have wonderful families. And if you had said that to me or to any of my sisters and brothers 
40 or 50 years ago that this would ever be the case, we wouldn't have believed it. And yet it shows you how far this country has come, how far acceptance within our own families has come, and the importance of understanding the contribution that the gay and lesbian community makes to the overall community is really desperately important. Um, and that appreciation, I, I, I think, hopefully grows, and it grows in because in very large part, the work you do uh, with, with the gay and lesbian community in, in this greater Boston and statewide community is really very important. And I know there's great appreciation for it. And I'm thrilled and I'm proud of the fact that O'Neill & Associates is responsible for it. Thank you for listening to our Pridecast. And don't forget to listen and subscribe to OA On Air. Happy Pride!